Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichette. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Wednesday, October 11th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that they start here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book, His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of the book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again, absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that, before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because time out to stifle a sneeze, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, please do so. You can either email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e 
at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N dot O-R-G. <clears throat> and once we get those comments or questions or testimonials from you, we'll address them on the Internet show, and as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time we were able to do that so you can listen back to the archives for your feedback. And we're greatly appreciative whenever anybody does that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention with this work is to be a service, and that's just a whole heck of a lot easier to do when we know how things are landing for you, how it's making sense. We did not have a show yesterday because of technical difficulties with Blog Talk Radio, and so we're picking up somewhere in the middle of the week and we're available for comments and questions. There's plenty of time for that. Um, I believe on Monday what we did mostly was uh, read from the book Choose Again by Diedrich Wolzak. And um, that's an option again for today. It's also an option for people to raise a comment or a question. Let us know how we can be of service. The, um, being that it's a Wednesday, we had a support group last night, and we'll have another one on tomorrow. Um, and last night we ended up just, for the most part, we had a little bit of, right near the very end, that we listened to a seven-minute presentation from uh, Abraham Hicks. But for the most part, it was just, individual processing and people going through some very intense things in their lives and us doing our best to support them through that. I have um, gotten some feedback from people that the readings are appreciated and also that they're hoping we go back and redo the way of mastery. I was um, doing so much in my Kindle recently that I'm not sure exactly it's going to pick up where we left off with... uh, The Choose Again book by Diedrich Wolzak. So let's see what we have here. I believe we ended with the end of Chapter 5 and the uh, summary that upsets are gold because they represent opportunities for healing. And we are never upset for the reason we think. And that we resist the temptation to say, I'm upset because, because there are no small upsets. And we are not upset by facts or events. But our upsets are the result of the interpretations that we choose and place on those events. And that our interpretations are based on the beliefs we hold about ourselves. And if you want to be right about something, um, 
the observation is you can either be right or happy. And if you really want to be right about something, try to just be gentle with yourself about it. Observe it and smile. And I'm really kind of wondering if this is where we left off or if we've already... um, read this section, so I'm trying to pull up my Kindle on another device and see if it takes me to a different location. Or maybe somebody on the call can remember, did we read Yeah, this has a different location. Yeah, we were talking about step two in romantic relationships. And um, so I'll, I'll pick up here a little bit further on. So in that, that's a, a good place to start to review. Step two, this is a section in this chapter, Step two in romantic relationships, and Diedrich writes, many couples come to the healing center because they feel their relationship needs work, while their relationships are ultimately transformed in a very positive way. In the the beginning, they're invariably going to be highly uncomfortable. On occasion, couples report that in the beginning of doing this work, they feel worse than they ever have. The question is, how could that be? Before doing this work, people can attribute their unhappiness to a wide range of interpersonal issues and, by so doing, never look inside themselves. In practicing the six-step process, however, you're addressing the source of all problems. The source is your identity, the sense of I, close quote, I, close quotes, that you've made up. You are the cause of your relationship not being so wonderful, not your partner. And unless you allow that realization to ring true, you'll keep looking for causes and faults outside of yourself. Thus, there are two big steps you have to take. The first is to say, it's all about me. And the second is to say, nothing has gone wrong. Both these statements will be a leap of faith at first. In fact, there is nothing wrong with your relationship. What's wrong is your interpretation of your relationship, yourself and your partner. When people first undertake this work, they're apt to say, she should change, and as soon as she does, then I'll be happy. And and they'll tell her exactly how she should change. But therein lies the error. They're looking at something outside of themselves as being the source of their unhappiness, while the real source lies within. We need to look within ourselves and change our minds about who we think we are. If I insist on being right about my partner and how he or she needs to change, then I'm stuck with a losing strategy of trying to change the other person. 
I might send them off to enlightenment workshops or yoga camps or all kinds of esoteric retreats because come heck or high water, I want them to change. And when they come back all fixed, then they'll finally be the perfect partner for me. Well, guess what? That will never happen. It will never happen for the simple reason that this person is already the perfect partner. I just don't see it. So what am I seeing instead? I'm seeing myself reflected in my partner. And that's what I don't like. When couples come to me for relationship work, the most important and difficult step is for each person to take total ownership of the entire relationship. Many years ago, a woman joined one of our circles in Vancouver and shared a new and exciting idea she had learned from her therapist that day. She said, I learned today that I am 100% responsible for 50% of the relationship. That does sound very strong and very powerful. But if you think about it for a minute, though, 50% of the relationship, how is that defined and who does that defining? How long do you think it will take to make your partner's 50% larger and larger? Here's the unpleasant truth. I'm not responsible for 100% of 50% of the relationship. I am 100% responsible for all of it. There's no other way to confront how the ego works. The ego always depends upon the constructs of blame and victimization. And those are the constructs that typically rise to the surface in relationship counseling. What couples learn in this six-step process is to accept that it's all about, quote, me, close quotes. We have to change our beliefs about ourselves. And if we do, we'll have an entirely new experience, not just in our intimate relationships, but in all areas of our lives. Our work is not about behavior modification or compromise or sacrifice. When I had relationship counseling for my own marriage long ago, it centered on agreements such as, if I agree to do the dishes, then you'll take out the garbage. It was all based on negotiating behavior, and it went absolutely nowhere. If you find yourself in a counseling arrangement that focuses on changing specific behaviors, either your partner's or your own, then you'll find that lasting results are hard to come by. That's because trying to get your needs met by another person will never work. Only you can meet your own needs. And that only happens by you recognizing that a need is just the belief that you're already lacking something. That need will never be met simply because it's not real. When you transform the belief and the need miraculously vanishes with it, you get to see a very different life. There is no lack. In capital T, truth, there is no lack. In capital T Truth, we are unchangeably whole and complete. 
That's why our work doesn't focus on behaviors. Obviously, if we are in an abusive relationship or we are self-destructive, those behaviors have to stop in the short term. But everything that's playing out in our relationships is just evidence for who we think we are. To be really happy in life, sooner or later, we're going to have to start healing the core beliefs we've carried for so long. There is no escaping it. The key to step two is to be aware that we are constantly looking at our own beliefs whenever we catalog all the problems of a relationship. The thought, this is me, and this is me, and even this is me, and I don't like what I'm seeing. Well, if we don't like what we're seeing, we're going to have to change it. And that means changing our identity. We have to start correcting core beliefs. If we don't, we're going to be in the same relationship over and over and over again. Whether we stay with this partner or go on to the next one makes little difference. That's because we are in relationship with our ego self. However, if we're constantly in a relationship with our higher self and extending that higher self to and through our relationships, these will be magically transformed. The next section is titled, All Relationships Are the Same. And Diedrich writes, Sometimes people seem to have different qualities of relationship, such as a great business relationship, but a troubled relationship at home. This is a situation that can only be sustained for a little while because the lousy relationship at home is what Papa G. Punja calls, quote, the drop of cyanide in the honey, close quotes. If we think we have a wonderful marriage but hate our job, sooner or later that circumstance is going to negatively affect our home life. That's because all relationships are with ourselves. Any relationship we find less than joyful than others represents some troubled aspect of ourself. That aspect or core belief will keep seeking evidence for its reality, eventually poisoning all of our relationships. A man in his mid-30s, very successful in business, had absolutely no trouble attracting beautiful women. But after two or three months of dating, those women invariably became increasingly busy and had less and less time for him. They were overscheduled, they had demanding careers, they canceled dates, or they couldn't see him for days on end. Sooner or later, he always got the message that he was just not all that important. Why did it always happen to him that the women he attracted were sooner or later too busy or very busy? As we began our process, he turned his mind to the most recent time when a partner was, quote, not available, and how he felt. He strengthened it, and he immediately remembered, I'm three years old, I've stubbed my toe, and it's bleeding a little bit. I run into the kitchen where my mom is making dinner, and I say, Mommy, Mommy, and my mom turns around halfway and says, Not now. Right then, 
this gentleman made up his mind, women won't have time for me. And that also meant I am not important or I am not lovable. Thirty years later, he goes to a cocktail party and scans the room. Perhaps there are 12 eligible women there, but only one who will eventually not have time for him. Of course, that's the one he'll be attracted to. If they connect, it's because she has complementary belief that being too busy will protect her from getting really close to anybody, thereby defending some wounded story of her ego self. We are all beings of energy. Beliefs are energy. Our energy field surrounds us, and when we connect with other people, it's usually because our energy field, our beliefs, meet with their energy field and their beliefs. So it is with our fellow at the cocktail party. He will pick time and again, he will pick the woman who eventually will not have time for him. He's looking to live a perpetual replay of that early experience with his mother so that it can be healed. But his ego wants to prove that the original story is still true. It gets more interesting, though. Even if the person to whom I'm attracted does not initially reflect my beliefs, over time he or she will. Let's say I have a, I have a belief I'll be betrayed, and my new partner is the most, most faithful person the world has ever known. In that case, I may constantly, constantly and continually suspect and accuse and nag and reject her as if she betrayed me. And then, guess what? She'll eventually have an affair and my ego will, smug, will smugly say, oh, I knew it. If we don't like the circumstances that we continue to attract, we can change our beliefs. And in so doing, we will attract different realities. There's no doubt that it's challenging to declare, from here on out, I will gladly assume total responsibility for everything that happens to me. It is a tough decision to make. And it's a tough decision to reinforce. The invitation is, make it anyway. For if we are willing to make that crucial decision... We've taken the single most important step forward in our own healing. We need to understand that it's impossible to be a victim in the first place because, in truth, nothing happens that can ever really hurt us. It is our thoughts alone that generate hurt in us. It is our interpretation of what seems to happen that causes our suffering. Who we really are, our eternal self, that is unchanged and unchangeable. Because of this, any person whom I'm attempting to blame for hurting me is always innocent. That is a tough concept to accept as well. And it's absolutely essential to our healing that we do so. The next section is titled, Reversing Usual Cause and Effect. Diedrich writes, Conventional thinking would have us believe that something happens to us. For instance, I'm the victim of circumstances. And subsequently, there's a reaction or effect created as a result of the precipitating cause. 
my parents not demonstrating love and affection translates to it's hard for me to show love and affection. That's cause and effect, right? I've learned, however, that how I feel in any given circumstance comes from within. And once I decide that my one purpose, my only purpose is to be happy, then guess what? That's when the world becomes a happy place. And all the stuff that gets thrown at me is nothing more than neutral events that I no longer give the power to upset me or provoke me. I've learned how to welcome everything that comes into my life because I understand that nothing can ever really hurt me. I welcome the rain. I welcome the snow. Well, he says in parentheses, okay, maybe I don't quite yet close parentheses. I welcome upsets because I am never a victim. You are not a victim. Not one of us is a victim. There are no victims, only volunteers. Everything in your life has been chosen by you as an opportunity for healing. We create our own experience by playing out the expectations that our beliefs have set up. We keep gathering evidence to prove that the beliefs underlying our identity are true. The evidence is the circumstances that we continue to attract, and the underlying beliefs are magnets drawing those experiences to us. For a dramatic illustration of the principle, consider the case of Julie, and in her own words, quote, I have been raped twice in my life, and my interpretation was that I subconsciously drew these experiences to me in order to justify the underlying belief that I deserve to be punished and that bad things should be, happen because I am unworthy of happiness. She goes on. The second rape was particularly traumatic because the man actually broke into my home in order to rape me. He had my clothes off, I was naked on my bed, and when I realized I was trapped there, I pretended I was about to throw up. I jumped up and ran, as if for the bathroom. But instead, I ran out the door of my apartment into the hall. From there, I ran to the third floor of my apartment, banging on doors and yelling, Help! Help! Some girls let me in, and they got their boyfriends to go check out my apartment. They came back saying, the coast is clear, he's not there, everything's okay, and it's secure. You can go back into your apartment. And so I went home. At 2 in the morning, I woke up, startled to see the same man in my bedroom again. And this time, he was really pissed off, enraged, in fact. And he had a big knife this time. So he raped me. I was 19. And every night after that, I would wake up at the same time, 2 in the morning, unable to go back to sleep. Clinically speaking, I had post-traumatic stress disorder. 30 years later, I'm at Diedrich Center in Costa Rica, having just learned the tools necessary to properly process this trauma. When I woke up at 2 in the morning at the center, I started processing my traumatic experience of myself alone in my room using my six-step, the six-step process. 
She writes, I wrote about the trauma, taking the feelings that came up at 2 in the morning first, back to the first event, and then way back to when I was young. These feelings led me to these beliefs. The belief is, I am bad, I am not lovable, the world is not safe, I am a victim. Over and over, I did my forgiveness that night and the next day. In the healing circle, I shared what I had done, and that night and every night since then, I've slept like a baby. When I first wrote out the story, I could see that I had been losing all of this sleep for what? For a story. I hadn't been able to sleep for 30 years because of a story I was carrying around in my head. What happened to me is the story of what happened to a body, and that body is not me. It's not the essence of me. And with this realization, the trauma stopped tormenting me, and I was finally at peace, able to sleep. Diedrich writes, I don't think it's true that Julie, quote, created or attracted the rapes based on her beliefs. However, the traumatic character of the experiences was chosen by her beliefs. Her ego experienced the rape as punishment and as just rewards for being unworthy as herself because she always believed she was unworthy. She had made up that, a self, at a ver- that self at a very early age long before the rapes. What made her story so traumatic for decades was her identification with the body. I've worked with countless victims of abuse, physical and sexual, and as soon as the client allows the truth that he or she is not the body, the trauma subsides. These things were done to the body, and we are not our bodies. I have a body, but I do not identify with that body any more than I identify with my car. I will look after my body and lovingly take care of it by giving it proper nutrients, etc. However, in this work I teach that the body I teach that the body is in the mind as opposed to the idea that the body is the home of the mind. That's a huge shift in seeing the self. See the self an essentially Eastern way of seeing it compared to the way most people in the West believe that my body exists within my mind, not, or not the other way around. The next section is titled, Enough of the Story. Diedrich writes, I've said much about the story in this chapter, and perhaps I need to clarify something. Initially, it is important for people to be able to tell their story, simply because they need to know that they're being heard. There's a trust that develops because of that. And after telling your story once or twice, it no longer serves a purpose. The Blackfoot Indians of Alberta have a wonderful healing circle tradition. Anyone in the circle is allowed to tell their story twice. If they start a third time, everybody turns their chairs around. In other words, they're sending the message, enough already. They just don't want to hear it anymore. Why not? Because in the story, there is no way out. Because in the story, I get to be right. 
Here is the choose again variation on the serenity prayer, which may speak to you now after reading what we have so far in this book. Here's the serenity prayer from the choose again perspective. Quote, God, grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change, the courage to change the one I can, and the wisdom to know that it's me. Summary of this chapter. Point number one, it's about me, not not another person. And this is always true. Point number two, we cannot be victims. Point number three, there is no one to blame. Point number four, we are the authors of our own experience. Point number five, do not believe your own story. Point number six, so you don't really feel like allowing step number two? Then, okay, but don't make yourself wrong. That's the toughest step for all of us. So I'm going to take a little pause here and ask for comments or questions. We've got about 25 minutes left, 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1 on your phone, you can weigh in on some of this. I would be amazed if nobody has any comments because most of the time when we start presenting this level of this work, whether it's from Michael or the Course in Miracles or the Way of Mastery or the Abraham work or the Diedrich Wolzak work, some people say, this is complete garbage because that happened to me and I had nothing to do with it and there really is evil in the world, etc., etc., etc. And Diedrich, like so many other of these deep spiritual teachings distilled this out from the Course in Miracles and his other studies and he's come to the conclusion that his life gets better and better and better when he refuses to accept the role of victim at any level. And he says that's one of the hardest things for anybody to do so he understands it. If it's not landing well for you, please let us know. If there's some way to talk about it, if you have a question to help clarify it in one way or another, please let us know. The way Michael Rice talks about this is, he talks about the tool of responsibility. And to talk about responsibility as a tool means I actively look at everything that's gone on that's led up to where I am today and that I don't like where I am today. And then I go back and I reevaluate it and I single out what was my part in this? What have I have a choice in? What have I chosen to focus on or what actions did I take or what actions did I not take that led me to this situation? Now if I've done that and I take 100% responsibility for everything I said and did and focused on with my thoughts that brought me to this situation... Now I can pick up the tool of responsibility. And what this means is I have the ability to respond differently the next time by focusing on only those things that I have control over. And in the tool of responsibility, there is no mention of blame, no mention of guilt, 
no mention of attack or vengeance toward oneself or anyone else. And that is one of the toughest things to do for somebody in the Western mind that's been taught the good guys wear white hats, the bad guys wear black hats, there's always good and evil, it's always a struggle and a battle. Hopefully, you know, the good wins, but it's, you can't ever let your guard down. you got to be willing to kick some ass to get good results, etc. That's the Western mind that's always in comparison and competition and us against them and division. And you can observe for yourself what those results are. So again, I'll recite the number on the line or you're listening through a computer program where we can't access you but you've got a comment or a question give us a call at 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone and feel free to do that even when I'm reading and I'll continue in chapter 7 in Diedrich Wolzak's book Choose Again The title of the chapter is Step 3, Feel the Feeling. He quotes Rumi as saying, This human being is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival, a joy, a depression, a meanness, some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all says Rumi. Diedrich writes, Step three asks us to note our feelings. Feelings will lead us to our underlying beliefs. Those beliefs are the barriers to our happiness. We subconsciously choose our feelings based on who we think we are. Our feelings are not the natural outcome of what may be happening whether it's at work, at home, in traffic, at the store, we just think that they are the the natural outcome of those events. If, for example, you find out that your preteen daughter is smoking weed, that is a fact. That you react with anger or worry, or horror, or sadness, or a host of other feelings is due to your interpretation of that fact. That interpretation is chosen by the beliefs that have been triggered, which may include that you're a bad mother or father, that you are unworthy of parenting, and that you're guilty. We really have no choice. We have no free will to choose the feelings we experience based on those beliefs. Any feeling we may have, other than perfect peace, indicates that some healing of beliefs is in order. That's exactly what it says in the Way of Mastery, where it says, reactivity of any kind indicates the need for forgiveness. And in that work, forgiveness means the dismantling of a negative perception. It's very, very similar to what Diedrich is saying here, the dismantling of a negative belief. 
Diedrich goes on and says, the feelings that lead us to our underlying beliefs are completely insignificant in themselves. The only purpose they serve is to send a wake-up call. And the wake-up call is to say, hey, there's work to be done here. If you were to go sailing in the waters between Vancouver Island and mainland British Columbia, you might see a little red flag in the sea. This little red flag is attached to a spike that someone hammered into a, quote, deadhead, close quotes. A deadhead is a submerged log. And if I'm sailing and I hit a deadhead, there's a good chance that the hull of my boat will end up with a large hole in it, and I'll go down with the ship. That little red flag can be compared to the feeling. The deadhead is the belief underneath it. The red flag is really not very interesting, but it is invaluable in avoiding a shipwreck. You have no idea how many times I deadheaded and sank, metaphorically speaking, before I started practicing the choose-again six-step process. Anxiety, he says, parentheses, or depression, or worry, or anger, or sadness, close parentheses, is a default setting for many people's feelings, but we don't have to settle for them. If we are willing to continue this process, we will discover a way to overcome such debilitating feelings. But the process requires that any upset must be felt deeply. Many people have no idea of what they're really feeling. It's not yet something they're trained or even allowed to do in our society. outside ourselves, as we discussed in the previous chapter. We think we can't help but feel the way we do because our feelings are caused by outside agents. We can't change the government. We can't change the weather. We can't change our partner. We can't change the banking system. And so we either commiserate about our feelings or we cover them up. We may do this by eating comfort food or shopping or having a couple drinks or taking antidepressants. When we turn to one of these false solutions, our suppressed feelings are unexamined. Our underlying beliefs continue to fester like an infection covered by a Band-Aid. The next section is titled, Josie's Struggle. Josie, one of our staff members and a former client of Choose Again, came to us as a highly successful athlete with medals, championship titles, and a whole host of emotional issues, including body image. After two years in the medical system, Josie still had a lot of trouble feeling, partly because of a slew of medications, partly because of years of denying her terrifying feelings, as she recalled. Quote, I had a very easy life compared to other people. I'd always gotten to do what I wanted, and my family supported me, so I didn't really have to develop a lot of coping skills. 
I had always shoved down feelings and never looked at anything. One day, I realized that I didn't want to pursue the goal of becoming an Olympic athlete anymore. But I didn't know how to convey that to my family and friends because they had great expectations for me. I'd been going along with the program. I'd been not really looking at anything until I realized that I wasn't happy with the path I had chosen. When I realized this, I felt as if a carpet had been pulled out from under me, and then I got really scared because I'd built my entire identity around being a successful athlete. Everybody I saw asked, hey, are you still going to the Olympics? And I thought, I don't want to tell them that I don't want to be an athlete anymore. But I also had too much pride to admit how I was really feeling. So I became anorexic. This was my way out of having to be accountable. Choosing anorexia would enable me to say, well, it wasn't my fault. I'm anorexic. And this forced me to stop being an athlete. Instead of saying, I'm not really sure I want to be an athlete anymore, and that terrifies me because I built my entire life around that dream. At that point, I was able to identify my response as part of a recurring pattern in my life. For example, when I was very young, I used to figure skate. I remembered thinking, I'm not going to be the best at figure skating. My body is not a figure skater's type. So I quit figure skating without examining any of my feelings around the issue. Because of this pattern, I couldn't just say, well, that's what I'm feeling. I couldn't just say, hey, I need help. Instead, I acted out my fear in passive-aggressive ways, which no one understood, least of all me. I put myself literally at death's door so that family and friends would have to rescue me. All this drama took the focus off my desire to change my professional goals and dreams. And I didn't have the courage to face that squarely, head on. At the age of 17, Josie weighed only 105 pounds. She, she writes, I went on a crash diet, losing 25 pounds a month. Anything I did eat about once a week, I threw up. Finally, I admitted to Mom, I'm miserable and I have to go to the doctor. The doctor took one look at me and said, oh, you're depressed. This pill will fix everything. She didn't ask me how I felt or what was really going on. Her solution was to give me a magic pill, and that would presumably make me happy and solve all my issues. About a week later, understanding that pills couldn't address or fix the deeper issues of why I wasn't eating, I realized I needed to see a specialist about my anorexia. A family friend who's head of an eating disorder clinic at a major hospital in my area, agreed to meet with me. But he just gave me a prescription for a new drug, saying, okay, now go on this pill, which will work faster than the other antidepressant you're on. Again, we didn't even discuss anorexia. Days later, I started having suicidal thoughts. I shared these with my mom. The doctor had asked me whether or not I was suicidal just a week earlier. At that point, as confused as I was, I couldn't comprehend how anyone could ever kill themselves. And then, a week later, 
I was totally obsessed with swallowing a whole bottle of pills. I went back to my initial doctor, a woman who'd prescribed antidepressants for my friend's brother who ended up killing himself. So when I told her I was suicidal, she sent me to the emergency room of the hospital because she didn't want another suicide on her watch. Psychologically and medically, I was very unstable at that point. But I was brought back to some semblance of health about 10 days later and released. But when I got out, I starved myself again. And within another 10 days, I was so dehydrated and malnourished, I was taken to a pediatric medical ward. They shoved feeding tubes up my nose and again snowed me with drugs. I spent seven weeks on that ward without seeing the light of day. I was having temper tantrums. I was acting out. Security would come and inject me with a tranquilizer and tie me to the bed. My interactions with the staff became kind of a game. One day I grabbed a bottle of bleach off the cleaning cart and chugged it back. So they never put me in the kid's psych unit again, which had, which had kitchen table and kitchen knives. And I told the staff, there are knives in the kitchen and I'm going to cut myself up with them. Because that was the game I was playing. Dieter writes, Josie's life turned around dramatically when she came to El Chilio and began processing her beliefs. Weaning off the meds allowed her to begin to feel. And here's a note, in parentheses, in brackets, choose again will never tell someone they must come off their meds, and we never advise anybody how to do it safely. If a client wishes to go off meds, we suggest that they ask for a safe withdrawal protocol from their doctor, whoever is prescribed the medications. And if he or she is unwilling to design such a plan, then we ask for advice from two psychiatrists who are intimately familiar with our work. They will suggest a safe protocol, and even then the decision is still entirely up to the client. He writes, 90% of our clients do go off meds and stay off. He continues, Josie's breakthrough came as a result of membering early events while completing a six-step process, as well as through the holotropic breathing, and also by beginning to recognize her feeling using the feeling sheet in the appendix of this book. Josie writes, The early memory that I recognized as having given rise to the beliefs that were running my life was being three years old with a kidney infection. I have a traumatic memory of being on a table with doctors around me, putting in a catheter and asking me to pee on the table, which I did. I thought that I had finished peeing, but the doctor told me that I needed to pee some more, which I couldn't do. That procedure was painful and very frightening for me. It was akin to sexual abuse. I developed the beliefs that there was something really wrong with me and that I didn't know my own body and that others had the answers to my problems and that I must have done something wrong and deserved to be punished. I became convinced that I'm a victim and that people are out to get me. The same feelings of people being out to get me that may still creep into situations today, such as when I'm leading yoga sessions or I'm dating or I'm leading one of these circles. I still punish myself with food at times. Close quotes. Diedrich writes, 
over the years, Josie had a pattern of dramatic dramatic emergency room visits. When she was 17, she found herself again tied to a table with tubes being pushed into her after an overdose of Tylenol PM. More recently, she had to have an intervention for a serious infection. She came to see the repeating pattern due to her belief that there is something wrong with her. That belief is now kept in check and gradually being transformed. And by being vigilant and processing any feelings that come up, Josie is making progress. Josie is now a yoga instructor and a staff member with a zest for life. And she's an inspiration to our clients. Josie went through all this because she couldn't stand to feel her feelings. And doctors cooperated by suppressing those feelings with medications. She didn't examine her feelings in a healthy way as they came up. Here you can see just how important it is that we learn to tune into our most difficult feelings and even welcome them so that we can follow them to the subconscious beliefs, those subconscious beliefs that need to be transformed so that we can be in touch with our true nature. There is a school of thought affirming that expressing your feelings is in itself therapeutic. Expressing your anger or having a really good cry will definitely feel very good. You'll likely experience a deep sense of relief. And ultimately, it does not correct the beliefs that are responsible for choosing that anger or that deep sadness. So this work suggests that we go directly toward the feeling. Go straight for the feeling. So that's where I'll leave it for today. We still have some minutes for conversation. 563-999-3581. If you call that number and press 1, you can give us some feedback. How is this landing for you? I believe it was on the second of this month that in the reading of this book, the entire six steps were contained in that one-hour show. And um, it might be worth going back and rereading. You might also search on the Internet for the PDF file of the six-step choose-again process by Diedrich Wolzak. I have a copy of it on my... um, computer because I was able to download it from his website years ago now, Um, but I'm told that that's difficult to locate on his website. So, I will... I will look at making that available in different ways as we continue this, if anybody's interested in having the written version of it. Although we also have the audio version available from the 2nd of October. Pretty sure it's the 2nd of October. So again, apologies for not being here yesterday. Technical difficulties with 
Blog Talk Radio. Thank you all for being here today. It's quite a lineup on the call. And um, we're getting ready for our second hour. We've only got about four minutes left. Please remember we have a support group available tomorrow. And we would appreciate your support in either joining us or sending the information along to somebody you think might benefit from that. All the information you need to join us absolutely free is available on MindShiftersAcademy.org website. And there's a separate login info page for Tuesday and a separate one for Thursday. We are entirely grateful for everyone who's joining us and learning to use these tools and it is it warms my heart at different times that I've got a number of people who've been exposed to these tools who've decided to move on and teach it to others and if you're one of those people uh, thank you if you have started your own support group, thank you. I know that in starting the group, you're getting the rewards right there. You don't really need anybody to tell you thank you for it because it is its own reward. And at the same time, if you've got any comments or questions to make, I mean, I've just remembered that this Internet show literally began because it was intended to be support for people who might want to start their own support groups. It's evolved into other things, clearly, but that's still one of the functions we can perform. So if there's any way we can support you, either in learning how to use these tools or starting your own support group or maybe even finding one that you can join virtually, other than ours, if for whatever reason that 6.30 to 9 p.m. Central Time isn't fitting your schedule, you can reach out to Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at Y-A-N.org, or you can reach out to me at T-J-H at MindShifters-Academy.org. And I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of this stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And I'll welcome Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tam. Appreciate it. You're very welcome and deserving. And I, Have a wonderful show. Thank you. Did you get, you were going to say something I was just else? Gonna, I was just going to ask, you are still reading from the Choose Again Six Steps? Yes. I know you're reading Diedrich, but okay. Yep. Awesome. Yep. Diedrich Wolzak's book, Choose Again. Awesome. Okay. All right. Blessings. Thank you. So welcome everybody to the second hour of MindShifters Radio. And today is Monday. No, it's not. It's Wednesday, October the 11th, 2023. And our call-in number is 563-999-3581. And press 1. That puts you in the queue. And we'd love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show. We'll give Michael a moment to dial in, and I'll just say we did get the app updated for Google, 
And it looks like we're going to have to do it again for Apple. Uh, so if you'd like to support that, you can go to our website and click Donations. And we would appreciate the support in keeping the app operational. There are several uh, things coming up. Tomorrow is the second Thursday of the month, and so we'll have the Global Book Club. And they're going to be doing Chapter 10 of the book. They're moving through it. If you didn't catch the archive, um, the last meeting that they did, they actually walked through a very powerful worksheet with a young lady, and that's in the archives. You can pick that up. Apologies for yesterday. Um, Blog Talk had an issue. We couldn't call in on the host line or the call-in line, which I'm sure if several of you tried to call in, you got to either it just sat there and spun around and never rang through, or you got a, a quick busy signal. And I'm glad that they got that fixed so that we didn't have to miss another day. So we did not have a radio show yesterday. That hasn't happened too many times. Blog Talk's been pretty good about staying steady. And we are uh, backing those up on a separate hard drive in case something happened and Blog Talk disappeared, that we would have all of those shows. Hopefully that will not happen because that would require a major change so that all of the links were redirected to our hard drive instead of to Blog Talk. We do have those going directly to the Blog Talk site, letting them host the recordings because the more that we save onto our website, and it's already huge, the more that our cost for the server goes up. And so as much as possible, we either save it over to YouTube or to Vimeo, or we have them uh, using them off of the Blog Talk site. But we do have a backup in case that ever happened, that we wouldn't lose all of the shows. We've um, been doing this for a long time, and we are thankful for Blog Talk. It's a very reasonable cost every month for us to uh, keep that going. And uh, I was just waiting to see Michael has joined us, so I'm going to welcome Michael. Well, thank you, dear heart, and welcome, everybody. Delighted and honored that you're here. And honored to be able to carry this conversation on another day, making this level of understanding available on a global scale. And I was reading something this morning and someone had uh, had written some pretty humorous, um, what should I describe it, a rather humorous approach to what people have done to do healing. And they go through how they went to Peru and they did this and they went to the shaman and they went to the, the sound bath and they went to the crystal bath and they went to the this and they took this drug and they took that drug and they did this and they, they did colonics and they did, I mean, it was just this whole list. And it, it was really, I mean, quite hilarious. Somebody had done some work to really put this whole list together. And in the last analysis, all you have to do is learn and do forgiveness. And everything else falls in place. Having done a lot of those things myself over the last 50 years, you know, having gone to uh, medical school to uh, to learn about healing and 
learned little there compared to what I learned from this master healer, master physician, Yeshua, who 2,000 years ago laid the whole game out and said, here's how it works, folks. Here's what you have to do. And the the extremes that people go to in order to try to recover sanity in order to get back to functioning as a human being are really pretty bizarre. And, and in a sense, sadly, because oftentimes people have tried so many things and all of those things that they tried really just didn't get them very far. In fact, it did the reverse. People have tried, oh, somebody said, oh, this will work. And when they tried and tried and tried and tried and, quote, unquote, nothing seems to work, then when something that is workable comes along, Oftentimes, people ignore it or won't do it because the thinking is, well, I've already tried everything. And so having already tried everything, why would I do something else? So people live in that world of, you know, they made me mad. They got me upset. They scared me. Oh, what's happening in the world? That's the problem. And if there's so many scams out there to try to show you how to deal with what's going on out there when what needs to happen is to lead you back inside where the problem is. So when we wake up to the truth of who we are, we realize that everything is energy and that we're energy and that our perception is a reflection of the content or the energetic patterns within our own minds, then we have a chance to change the game. And when you change the game, everything is everything in physiology changes. But you can only change the game from the inside. Oh, you can fight and struggle to try and make it happen out there. That's not where it happens. And so we're here to make the key tool that Yeshua taught 2,000 years ago available literally to every mind, heart, and being on the planet. And we're glad you're here to be part of the conversation. And I'm actually looking, if I seem a little distracted, it's because I'm looking for that, uh, that particular document. Pretty hilarious when you look at the the list when people don't want to step into forgiveness. Well, unfortunately, I'm not finding it, so I'll let that go. But I thought I could find it would be a fun read. So, Miss Jeannie, do we have anybody in the phone queue with a hand up or anybody in the chat room with a thought for us? Or maybe a question from the app? I have not received any questions, and there's no questions in the chat room, and nobody has a hand up. So, 
We have 52 minutes. Press 1 and let us know how you would like this conversation to go. And if you're on another station where we can't see you, 563-999-3581 and press 1. We'd love to hear from you. Recognizing, you know, probably one of the most difficult things for people to comprehend is that the world that we think we see through our eyes is an internal picture. Now, it's it's pretty easy. I mean, we can go into, you know, people who have done research in the brain and all of that, and they'll explain that to us. But it's really pretty easy to prove to yourself that reality is the output of the mind. All you have to do is go to any event. I don't, and, and, you know, it, it'll be more of a, an exacerbated result if the event is a traumatic one. And let's have 50 people stand around that event and watch it happen and then interview all 50 people. Now, at the event where the cause of what happens inside of people, everybody would describe the same event. But you'll notice that the guy who was prejudiced against women points out that women are the problem, and the woman or the guy who's prejudiced against other guys or jealous of guys point out how that guy was the problem. And then you'll notice that you know somebody who's got financial problems, they'll tell you how the problem was, the financial pressure that the perpetrator was under. And everybody will have a different reality, a different construct coming from their minds. The thing to get is that perception, the constructs of your mind, have a quality. And there is a key signal that tells us when the quality is off base. And the key signal is inside of the system that is generating the problem in reality, there's some form of hostility or fear going on. And as long as there's some form of hostility or fear going on, there's a reason, because there's hostility or fear in the perceiving mind. And if we can guide that person back into the root of the hostility or fear within their own minds, then guess what happens? They'll delete, they'll remove, they'll forgive the hostility or fear from their minds. And I don't care what the situation is. It doesn't matter. And you say, well, but how does that help me? You know, if I've got this terrible thing happening in my life, how does that help me? Well, one, I guarantee you're a much cleaner, clearer creator when you're connected to love, connected to hostility or fear. I guarantee you will resonate. You will draw to you. You will attract totally different circumstances, totally different behaviors, and totally different results in your life. And you'll have an upgraded intelligence level if you are in a trauma, a real, honest-to-God, traumatic problem situation. Then you're going to come to that situation rather than, you know, Paul talked about 2,000 years ago, we see as though through a glass darkly. Cleaning your glass empowers you in ways that a person with a dirty glass can't imagine. That's all. It's just, you know, it's just pretty simple and straightforward. 
And so the master tool for cleaning up the the tar, the bug juice, pediments to accurate perception, the master key to cleaning it up is the ability to access the underlying cause of the gunk, the tar, the hostility, the fear, and to access that in the presence of active love. About 30 years ago, we're doing an intensive at Heartland. I'm still working to understand what it is that causes healing. I'm working with the first century Aramaic language, but I don't have a clue how or why it works, except that, you know, it's, it's got to do with canceling goals. I couldn't explain to you then what I can explain to you now about perception, the way the mind works and the driver for perception, how to collapse it. And that gives you access to the underlying. I couldn't explain that. Better. I didn't know it. But I was very enthusiastically pursuing an understanding of what causes healing. We were doing an intensive, and there were several people who had some disturbed energies going on, and one person in particular was pretty dramatic. Our focus turned to that one person, and we went into the forgiveness process being very conscious of the movement of breath. And the result was so glaringly obvious. The, the shift in energy was just so blatant that nobody could miss it for one person in the room. And I'm asking, 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 what, you know, why didn't these other people get what that person got? Why didn't that shift happen for everybody in the room? What is it that causes healing? And what I was shown in that moment was that for healing to occur, two things have to happen. Remember, we're creators. Whatever we hold, we intensify, we send energy out into the world, and we produce results with that. If we hold hostility or fear, then we send energies of hostility or fear out to the world. And because the world works through resonance, resonance brings somebody right back to us with that energy. And most people choose to remain unconscious of the part of them that's engaged in sending out that energy. Why? Because it hurts. It's painful. It's disturbing. It's traumatizing to look at those things. But what I was shown in that particular intensive, when I inquired one more time, was that two things have to happen in order for healing to occur. One, the raw underlying energy that has been dissociated from, that produces the trauma, has to come forward in its original form, clear of all projections. 
You have to access the underlying energy. Two, there has to be the activity of conscious, active, present love in the space. When those two things occur, healing happens. That was a really key point. You know, at that point, I'd been doing the Aramaic forgiveness process for probably mm, 12 years. I've been working to understand forgiveness. That was a core part of everything that I did. But I still did not understand why you would do such a silly, stupid, ridiculous thing. Even though I said, you know, here it is. This is, you know, when I first came in touch with the core of forgiveness, that it has to do because perception is driven by goals. It has to do with canceling goals so that perception can be collapsed. And then what what you collapse into is the original energy that needs to be exposed. I didn't understand that back then, but that was a core part of what we were doing because over time, I had introduced that idea of canceling goals to a number of people, and because of the feedback I got from it, I didn't, it did not particularly impress me, but it was something that I would mention from time to time. And I'd have people who'd show up and say, Michael, you know, I've been doing that goal canceling. That's really powerful. I was like, really? Okay. So I worked more and more with it. But it had probably been about a dozen years, but I could not, I did not understand. I did not have, not have the brain cells to be able to explain the reason why you would cancel a perfectly good goal. But if you do it, what happens is the construct of your mind, the perception generated by your mind collapses in on itself, and that by definition is access to the original energetic pattern behind the trauma or behind the repeating traumas, you know, behind the why is this happening to me again experience. So if one person in the space is holding to active present love, whoever opens the hidden parts of their trauma to themselves, that trauma begins to dissolve. There's one of the reasons why community is so powerful. It takes a significant amount of practice to hold love active and present in your mind while your trauma is moving. Many people can't do that for themselves. That's one of the purposes of this radio show. Because we have a whole cadre of people not just Jeannie and myself, but a whole cadre of people who are there holding the space. And so whatever opens in my mind or your mind or Jeannie's mind in this conversation with this community of people, and by the way, because all matter is transparent to the most refined frequencies, and love is the most refined frequency there is, because all matter is transparent, space and time don't mean anything to the process. In other words, I can be here in Bristol, Virginia, and you can be in... Toronto, Canada, 
and you're keying in. You've been in the practice. You're holding the space of love. And all of a sudden, I get triggered into something, and I breathe, and I'm aware enough to know there's something I need to work on, and I look at the goal that I'm using to drive this, to keep this hidden from myself, and what surfaces in me because the person in Toronto, Canada, is part of this community and holding a space, brings healing to me, and vice versa. Why didn't everybody in the room that day experience the dramatic result that that one individual did? Well, remember, there are two components. Obviously, the love of threat was present, and that individual was able to cancel out the goals that interfered with him directly accessing the hidden parts of his own mind. When those two things meet, there is a transmutation of energy. There is a shifting of the form of energy. And we call that healing. So ultimately, it doesn't matter what the underlying dynamic is. It doesn't matter how deep, dark, dirty, nasty, evil, wicked, you know, whatever word you could use. It doesn't matter how black it is, how dark, how void of light it is. If light comes to it, the space is illuminated. We have this thing called a flashlight. The room is totally and completely dark, and I push the button on the flashlight, and bingo, this seems to disperse. Does the darkness disperse? No. Darkness is an absence. It's not a presence. So when one voids a part of their own physiology, a part of their own emotions, a part of their own mind from the presence of love or light, and that one cancels the goal that's keeping that trauma, that underlying energy void of light, hidden, they open the the window, in comes the light, and the absence is filled. So I invite you, if you're not doing worksheets, to really pick them up and put the pen to the paper and really make use of it. If you're not using it, you can go to our website, whyagain.org. That's whyagain.org, as in the title of my book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? First and last word. Whyagain.org. Upper left-hand corner says start here. Click the button. Start it working. You can download the worksheets, you can download videos, audios that explain how the worksheet works, how to use it, how to fill in the blanks. There are hundreds of hours of support for doing that. You can go to your app store on your phone. 
and type in the words Heartland, H-E-A-R-T-L-A-N-D, one word, Heartland Aramaic, A-R-A-M-A-I-C, forgiveness. And you'll be looking at the world's only forgiveness app. You can download that app free. It's purposely designed to be extremely private. And you can start to use the worksheet process right there on the app. And of course, if there are questions and confusion about how it works, what needs to be done, then we're here to support you in having access to that information. You can print off the worksheets from our website. There are a variety of worksheets. Over the years, I've worked with many different ideas on the worksheets and kind of refined it to what I, at least at this point, understand works best in terms of experience and watching people use it. Many people over the years have said what they like to do is they'd like to rotate and do different worksheets at different times. And that when they do that, they find that the shift in the energy of the worksheet helps to keep them moving forward, especially if they've hit a plateau and they've gotten stuck. What I finally came to understand is what I can now explain in just two minutes as to why you cancel a perfectly good goal. Because your goal is the driver for the perception that you have. And if you're hiding the root of your perception and there's pain in it, canceling the goal will expose the pain. When you expose the pain to love, it dissolves. That's all. It's transmuted. So we're here to hopefully transfer the understanding of that core tool to every mind, heart, and being on planet Earth. And we're delighted that you're here to be part of the conversation. So, Miss Jean, do we have anything happening in the chat room or anybody in the phone queue with a hand up? No, Yank is with us in the chat room. And, uh, I have well, hi there, young lady. Welcome. Waiting, waiting for you to come on that tomorrow is the book club. Let's talk about that a little bit. There is, you know, our, our most recent book club meeting, we did a, uh, a worksheet, a live worksheet. So there's a, it, was a, it ended up being about a two-hour session. And it was just uh, some really poignant moments happened. And I invite you to really download the link for that. I'm sure Jeannie's probably already putting it in the notes and put them to work. Give a listen to it, and the worksheet will come to a whole new level of understanding. And I did just find that uh, piece of information. By the way, you can find it on our YouTube channel if you just go to YouTube and uh, type in Michael Rice. He'll be in our YouTube channel. And then look for Hear My Voice Book Club. And there are several sessions that we've done. And the uh, door sheet is, is noted there. It was just recently. So the, the 
passage that I was talking about when I first started the show that I found was quite hilarious and the things that people do before they come to find the actual tools for changing the mind. This person writes, Well, you say there are experts who have answers. Psychiatrist, the analyst, the social worker, an astrologer. You take up religion, you get philosophy. You take Earhart seminars. You tap yourself with EFT, you get your chakras balanced, you try some reflexology, you go to ear acupuncture, you do iridology, you get healed with lights and crystals, you meditate, you chant a mantra, you drink green tea, you try Pentecostals, you breathe in fire, you speak in tongues, you get centered, you learn NLP, you try actualizations, you work on visualizations, you study psychology, you join a Jungian group, you get Rolf, you try psychedelics, you get a psychic reading, you jog, you jazzercise, you have colonics, you get into nutrition and aerobics, hang upside down, wear psychic jewelry, get more insight, biofeedback, gestalt therapy. You go see your homeopath, your chiropractor, your naturopath. You try kinesiology. You discover your Enneagram type. You get meridians balanced. You join a consciousness raising group. You take tranquilizers. You get some hormone shots. You try cell salts. You have your minerals balanced. You pray. You implore. You beseech. You learn astral projection. You become a vegetarian. You eat only cabbage. You try macrobiotics. You go organic. You eat no GMO. You meet up with the Native American medicine man. You do a sweat lodge. You try Chinese herbs, moxic combustion, shiatsu, acupuncture, feng shui. You go to India. You find a new guru. You take off your clothes. You swim in the Ganges. You stare at the sun. You shave your head. You eat with your fingers. You get really messy. You shower in cold water. You sing tribal chants. You relive past lives. You try hypnotic regression. You scream a primal scream. You punch pillows. You get Feldenkrais. You join a marriage counselor group. You go to Unity. You write affirmations. You make a vision board. You get rebirthed. You do the I Ching. You do tarot cards. You study Zen. You take more courses and workshops. You read lots of books. You do transactional analysis. You get yoga lessons. You get into the occult. You study magic. You work with karma. You take a shamanic journey. You sit under a pyramid. You read Nostradamus. You prepare for the worst. You go to retreat, you try fasting, you take amino acids, you get a negative ion generator, you join a mystery school, you learn a secret handshake, you try toning, you try color therapy, you try subliminal takes, you take brain enzymes, antidepressants, flower remedies, you go to health spas, you cook with exotic ingredients, you look into strange fermented oddities from faraway places, you go to Tibet, you hunt up a holy man, you hold hands in a circle and get high, you renounce sex and going to the movies. You wear some yellow robes, you join a cult. You try endless varieties of psychotherapy. You take wonder drugs, subscribe to lots of journals. You do the Pritikin diet, you eat just grapefruit. You get your palm bread. You think new age thought, you improve your ecology. You save the planet, you get an aura reading, you carry a crystal. You get a Hindu sidereal astrologer interpretation. You visit a trans medium. You go for sex therapy. You try tantric sex. You get blessed by Baba somebody. <laughs> you join an anonymous group. You travel to Lourdes. You soak in the hot springs. You join Arika. You wear therapeutic sandals. You get crowned. You get more prana and breathe out of that state of black negativity. You try golden needle acupuncture. You check out snake gallbladders. You try chakra breathing. You get your aura clean. You meditate in Cheops, the pyramid in Egypt. You and your friends have tried all the above, you say? Oh, the human. You wonderful creature. Tragic, a comic, and yet so noble. 
such courage to keep on searching. What drives us to keep looking for the answer? Suffering. Hope. Intuitively know that somewhere there's the ultimate answer. I thought that was pretty hilarious. <laughs> the journey. Having done some of those things myself. Yes, I did go to Tibet. Yes, I did go to India. <laughs> oh, dear. What fun. And all you had to do is pick up a worksheet. Now, does that mean you don't do any of those other things? No. No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean you, you know, if you're a junk food junkie, it doesn't mean you're going to get healthy eating nothing but junk food if you do forgiveness. You'll do better than you would if you don't do forgiveness. But no, you're going to have to do something about your diet. You're going to do something about your habits. You're going to have to shift and change. But all of that will come about as a product of forgiveness. Without forgiveness, people fall into all kinds of patterns of dissociative thought and find a thousand ways to keep their self-inflicted trauma hidden from themselves. And when you begin actually using this tool that was presented 2,000 years ago, wasn't something I made up. It wasn't something I figured out. That's for sure. I wish I'd been smart enough to figure it out. But of course, then we discovered that figuring it out is one of the pseudo-solutions, the master pseudo-solution of the non-being mind. All those things I just read in that list, they're all the things that people try as their pseudo-solutions. But ultimately, if you willingly step into the practice of bringing love conscious act and present to your mind and identify every situation where there is some form of upset being produced by your physiology, identify the goal that's driving that process and cancel the goal, then you'll be on the path of accessing the hidden parts of your own mind. It's a genius solution. It's just... It's, when I look at all that I've done over the last 50 years on this journey, oh, I wish somebody had handed me a forgiveness worksheet day one. Oh, man, I could have saved tens of tens of thousands of dollars and thousands of hours. Or pardon me, I, I guess I should, it would have to be more than just hand that to me. Hand that to me and... Help me to understand that this works. Inspire me to the point that I'd actually put the pen to the paper and use it. And when you do that, it just unfolds everything that needs to be unfolded. Yes, there are some corollary tools to it that we've developed that are... that enhance and accelerate the forgiveness process, but that's the core of it. That's where it all happens. 
And if you're out there in listener land, we'd love to talk to you about it. How is your process going? What kind of things have you tried? And have you really put the pen to the paper with the worksheet? Two comments out of the chat room. Um, oh, cool. said she added when you talked about uh, the, the worksheet process, and I did put that link in the notes for today, and it's also under schedules in the book club, and it's also on our YouTube channel. But she says, if you have any triggers with fathers, then it's a great workshop to listen to. And then she also, after you read that piece, she said she read that for the first time last week and really got to thinking how much time she spends trying to ease her suffering to distract or make her feel better from facing her real feelings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, going headlong into it and going through it is, is the key. For sure. And we have Miss Susan six one zero. You're on the air. Hi, folks. <clears throat> Welcome, young lady. Jeannie. Thank you, Jeannie. I wanted to ask yes, you. I didn't hear you say about the app that it's. Uh, did you arrange it so Wait. that you can charge for it now? No, that wasn't part of the the change. Oh. We actually didn't edit any of the app, what we had to do was make it compatible to the newest uh, Android operating system. And oh, I, I got a, a I notice, yeah. And I got a notice yesterday from Apple, and so they've got some changes coming up November 1st that we're going to be required to meet, so we'll have to do that again. <laughs> wow. Amazing. But no, this time we didn't actually make any changes to the app itself. We just had to make it compatible to the newest uh, operating systems. Yeah. Well, it's such a good little gizmo. I I know you said there are there are reasons for not charging for it, and they're complicated, and they want part of it and all this. <clears throat> if it ended up working right, though, you would make some money. Uh I wish you could get compensated for all that work. You know, anyway, understand. none of my business. I hear you, but I just <laughs> keep keep thinking of it. <clears throat> um, I don't exactly know how. This is a testimonial, I guess. My experience with the wake-up sheet now has become that I use it in conjunction with a mind shifter, or or just plain um, journal writing, and we've had a kind of a breakthrough with Michael here, our Michael here. Um, awesome. Been putting, well, I know it is awesome. It's it's uh, we've been putting in applications for him for housing. Uh, some in Florida and some nearby here in Pennsylvania. And he's been not very excited about any of it. And I've been kind of acting like his nanny or mother or something, making sure that they get done and sent out. And we got him, Tim and I found him two little gigs that are ongoing, one one week and one the next week, playing oldies for old people and they love it and Tim Bingham went with him Tim has to drive him because we don't have our second car but he had time and he went and he stayed and he said it was 
phenomenally good. He said, Michael is an entire different person when he's up there. He becomes... He's up there doing his purpose. Yeah, but what happens afterward, it's as if he disappears. There's not much person otherwise except a kind of a shadow self. And that isn't to say he isn't helpful with our little animals and hanging the washing. He ha- I did a wash this morning, went down to, to hang it up in the basement, and it was all hung up. Um, so I thought, well, remember, I, I, what? Remember last week when you were talking about what Tim had to say to you when you were teaching? Yeah, yeah. That you disappear? And my mm-hmm. input was, no, that's when the real you showing up. Mm-hmm. My offering is that's what you're seeing with with Michael when he's up there playing. He's showing mm-hmm. up. He's doing his purpose. Right. You know, maybe sharing that with Michael, you know, getting Tim to share his observation of, how different he is and maybe helping him to recognize that when he's in touch with his purpose and doing it, that's when he comes alive, when he's real. That's where his power is. And, mm-hmm. you know, I've heard you speak of the amount of fear that he has and trauma he's had. Remember that line in the chorus that says, in my defenselessness, my power and safety lie. Maybe that would be a vehicle for him to recognize because he's got to experience the difference when he's up there playing. When his oh, yeah. his fears and his defenses melt away and when he's mm-hmm. not got that power flowing through him, it sounds like his defenses and his fears, his past traumas run the show. That might be a gateway to helping him to open that and you know, maybe even doing the purpose worksheet with him might help give him some insight into how he can tap into his real power. Because it sounds like he does it very well when he gets up there to perform, like he can let the non-being self go and just rock the house. Well, that's then that would be the idea. He does know that he says that's who I, that's who I really am. He says I really interact with people. Well, actually, he's not. I don't think he's really, really interacting with them because he doesn't make friends. But he and he says that he says we banter and we exchange jokes and people are responding to me and they some of them got up and danced. It's a, one of them is a memory unit. So these people are, have dementia and yet they're dancing. Dance and they'll sing along with him if they know the song. Right. <clears throat> and he loves that. And he did say, this is what I should be doing, which is like you just said. This is his purpose. However, when he, and he said to me, I, he finally said, I, you know, the reason I drag my feet about these applications is I don't think I can live in a room. I've got to live in a car so I can drive around and get gigs because I can't have gigs if I can't move around and I don't have money for a room and a car and I have to make money under the table because Social Security will dry right up the amount I get. They'll take it away if I make $200. They'll, 
I'll be punished for working, which is a terrible mistake in our system, and I don't know how you'd fix that. Crazy. That's yeah. a whole other thing to talk about. But I, it finally hit me that I haven't been frustrated yeah. with Michael because he's here. I've been afraid that we've been hurting him because the, the more he's been here, the less he has done to the point where he hasn't been doing his purpose, as you put it, at all. So right. I said, Michael, I, I want to readjust our deal. Um, I get it that you don't want to run. And he wrote to me so many, if only, but, yes, but, I can't do this and I can't do that. And you both know how frustrating that can be if you get an idea and they shoot it down because of some resistance somewhere. And there's a ton of that. In any case, I said to him that, for me, it's been very painful to see him lie so fallow and feeling as if maybe we're hurting him rather than keeping him here. And he finally wrote me the sweetest letter about how he has felt safe here. He hasn't felt safe in years, how he yeah. saved the life, we saved the life of his dog, which we did. I mean, I don't know if the dog would have died, but it was a a serious vet bill, and he couldn't have gotten the dog there, and he was terribly anxious about this animal on him. Right. But I realized that I'd feel better about his being here if he were working, and, but we don't have a car for him at the moment, but Tim can take him around. What we're doing is we're gradually, and the the tools are like keeping me on track because the extremes of frustration and anger, and then I'll feel a glimmer of love. That you get to heal. Yeah, and then it goes back and forth, and it's been like a yo-yo. And Dr. Tim told me to practice micro-affections with myself. I've been practicing them. It's a great idea. I can manage a few, few of those. But I finally, Tim and I figured, as long as we are here, Michael can live here, if he will get out there and get some gigs, and we will help him do that. Now, today, it's, it's like the old days. He's down there watching TV on his little teeny computer, and nothing right. really seems to be happening again. But I think we have a little bit of insight into how we can stay happy about his being here is to start researching old people's homes around here and having him work up a nice resume and uh, get back out. And then he'd be making enough money to buy a van and then he would probably take off just because he's terrified of the winter here. His, You know why he's afraid of the winter here? Because his tiny blind dog won't have a place to pee. And he has to dig right. a patch in the green yard and put the smell of dog urine on it so the dog will know it's a place to go. And he's very, very, very anxious about that, which I have to translate that into my things. Yeah, what? Yeah. Of course, he's not anxious about that at all, but he's got this anxiety disorder that he can put it anywhere on anything, including Mm -hmm. the dog having a place to be. And, you know, maybe one day he'll get that. One of the thought I'd throw in here, Maybe, even if it was just, you know, somebody with their cell phone were to video him doing one of these gigs. And, you know, 
the mm-hmm. fun that he creates, the excitement that he creates, they could be attached to his application to residential facilities. And I bet, you know, when I think about where Jeannie, you know, where Jeannie's dad was when we couldn't handle him anymore, when he was a two-person transfer and there was just no way to do it in this house, yeah, I think they would have loved to have had a resident. I mean, they, they every once in a while would bring an entertainer in, but I would think they would have loved to have had a resident that, you know, three days a week, part of their payment for being there was, was they played some music for everybody and got that sort of thing going. That sounds like it yeah. might, you know, open, you know, every door, that he'd have a safe home, that he'd have warmth, he'd have companionship, he'd have friends, that he can interact with and play with, he can do his purpose, and maybe even have his dog there. Yeah, I I asked him about that because these places might well want to make that arrangement, but he said he didn't want to do that. He has his reasons. I can, you know, every new place he goes might look appealing to him, and we can bring up the subject again and see see whether that might be a good place for him to be. He is, you know, approaching 70. It isn't as if he's going to have all his generators going for the for a long, long time. He needs a safe, permanent home. Right. Yep. Yep. I hear you. So I hear you. I'll hold the space for him. Well, I didn't. Even, I wasn't even going to call in because it's not that interesting a story. But um, the tools are my friend, and they're just keeping keeping the intention to hold love active and present is huge. Yes, and and giving yourself micro affection is an awesome, great idea too. <laughs> yeah, it is. Even if it's just for a a second or two here and there until the habit becomes ingrained. That's that's an awesome idea. Thank you, Dr. Tim. Yeah, it's a good idea, pre-commitment in the mirror type of thing. I'm not ready to do that flat out, but this is possible. (laughs) Wait wait a minute, I, I didn't quite understand. What was that about the mirror? That you're not ready. You should do do a commitment in the mirror. Put one hand on your heart mirror and one hand on your own mirror, and say the loving things that you might say to a partner or something to yourself. Um, And you haven't done that, are you? Oh, cool. I gave it a few. (laughs) You deserve (laughs) it. A few tries. (laughs) Well, you could maybe Uh, do it in micro moments. Yeah. When I you know, maybe just mirror, every time you pass the mirror, you could give a glance. and There you go. There you yeah. go. <laughs> hey, you're pretty good looking. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, anyway, that's a, it's a small report. But it's good to have a, a plan that's better than... Because when I suggested Michael get out there and um, put his res, resume together and get out there, he, he just says, you want me to leave, I'm in the way. It's a huge escalation to being thrown out again. I said, this has nothing yeah. to do with that. We've never yeah. mentioned that. But uh, anyway, so it's... But, but it's it sounds like it's always in his mind. So it doesn't take much to trigger yeah. into activity. Yep, it is. So 
And he, Michael, I do have a question. He says he is on the spectrum as an autistic man. I don't get the sense of right. that by, you know, anything that he does particularly. But he said, nobody gets me. I don't speak anybody's language. I'm sorry I don't speak well with you, which isn't the case. I've never noticed a problem. And I said that. I said, you do fine. And he said, that's because I'm working at it so hard. But if I just acted like myself, you wouldn't know what to make of me, and you'd probably not want me around. I make jokes that nobody gets, except when I'm on the stage and the audience is in a certain mood, I can make these jokes. And he told me one of them, and I'll tell it to you. And he said, you failed. You failed. I told you a joke, and you didn't like it. The joke was, um, I love to play in the leaves and hide in there, and then my dad can roll over me with a with the uh, motor lawnmower at the big lawnmower. It it was a joke about getting shredded under the leaves, and I had an unduly severe reaction to that because I had a friend get run over. She was hiding in the leaves in a gutter and a car parked mm. there. And I, I explained to him that that was not the greatest. And he said, well, but I pre- I've proven my point. And I'm talking like me. I can't even replicate how he talks. But mm. And then he'll get going. And he, like me right now, he won't be able to stop. He'll tell me all the famous people he's worked with, all the famous places he's been, how he had this business and that business and was successful here. He keeps trying to tell me that he's gifted and okay and capable. And it's not a dialogue. It's a recitation. So, yeah. Oh, and, that, and I think that, I think that's one of the sets of symptoms that goes with being on the spectrum, too. Oh, you think so? There's a different brain. Brain just works differently. Yeah. And you don't have the Avison there now, do you? Susan? Hello? Well, sounds like we lost she the just, lady. Yeah, she uh, she just called back in. So you're okay. back on, Susan. Okay, I've got these fancy hearing aids that if I touch my ear, I hang up. Ah, okay. But um, I just hung up on you. You don't, you don't have so, the Avacyn there now, do you? No, um, Gina's no. got okay. the use of her hand back. Yeah. Yeah, she she actually called me the other day and told me that. That's pretty awesome. That she's, yeah. Her hand was pretty much it. non-functional, and, and she's got it back totally. Yeah, but, um, yeah she loves it. One of the things they've found with the Avacyn is it really helps people that are on the spectrum. Really? Oh, you mentioned that before about Jacob doing it. Jacob says, I told that to him, and he says, don't you remember that I used it when I was at your house? And I said, no, I don't remember. He said, yeah. Well, he used it only a couple of times, and he says it didn't do a thing. Well, you know, he should use it, but he isn't there, yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Well, holding a space, dear heart. Thanks. Yeah. All right. Well, any other thoughts for you today? No. Thanks so much for listening to all that. Delighted. Delighted. Glad to hear things are moving forward in terms of uh, the challenges, the gifts he's giving you to 
bring your healing up and uh and the gifts you're giving him it's pretty awesome that uh that he's got that uh, sounds like otherwise it's a pretty tragic and traumatic world for him oh. yeah it is okay michael thanks all right you have a blessed one we appreciate you okay thanks michael okay bye all right miss Jeannie. well we're down to about the last five minutes no, there's nobody else. Um, you know, I was working with a gentleman the other day and he was talking about, you know, whether he was being successful in doing all the work and things like that. And then he remembered going to a business meeting that morning and that his staff was even like, Okay, what's going on with this guy? So I said, just little things like that shows your success. You know, you can't compare yourself to other people or, you know, to where you're wanting to be, small things, that you're creating a difference. And we had a hand just now go up. So we have a Great. couple minutes. D- Doug, 314, you're on the air. Hello, hello, Michael. I, I'm i seeing through the filter of a worksheet right now, but listening to Susan and wondering if maybe, I mean, I'm going to offer that since we only have a minute, that what I'm seeing is that perhaps there's a all of these efforts to cover up a deep hidden sense that he is not valuable, is not worthy, is always wrong, isn't worthy to stay in the house, you know, all of this about how, who, who he's worked for and what he's done, and then this extreme sensitivity to any suggestion that he's not good enough or he even makes up that he's not good enough to stay there if he doesn't do something right, that if, right. if there could be a forgiveness process to bring up open the veil on his deep doubts about his value, that that might be something to look towards. Anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a worksheet I, from your earlier thing. I know we're out of time, but uh, <laughs> when you were talking about forgiveness, I just became highly triggered. I'm like, okay, what is this? So uh, it's, it's related. It's like, oh, is there any future, you know, of delight in my life from here? And uh, it's, uh, it's just, I think it's contributing to my pain, my headache all day, you know, the long COVID thing, all of that. So um, on that worksheet, and that's all I had to say in the minute or two that we have. So thank you for the work and for your for your offering, and good luck to Susan with Michael, with or whatever his name was. I think it was Michael. Anyway. Is, yeah. Well, I'll thank join you in that, yeah. uh, holding that space for both of them. Thank you. Doing so for all, right, all of us. All right, take care. All right. Bye. Okay. Blessings. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Have the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. Blessings. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with Dr. Michael Rice and myself, Jeannie Rice, and Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet as we present the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We are here for two hours every Monday through Friday from 12 noon to 2 o'clock Eastern Time on MindShifters Radio. For more information on Aramaic forgiveness, please visit www.whyagain.org. That's www.whyagain.org.